Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. This is the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and they share their story with us. They might have overcome some kind of adversity, they may still be on that journey, but with stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. Lucy Dawson is a 26-year-old model, campaigner and influencer, telling her difficult story whilst paving new paths for young people with disabilities. At the age of 20, Lucy was studying criminology at the University of Leicester, where she began experiencing head pain that just wouldn't go away, and as we now know, would change her life forever. Due to her symptoms in 2016, Lucy was misdiagnosed with a breakdown and section for three and a half months in a psychiatric centre, and the pain didn't stop there for Lucy. After failures from the professionals looking after her, Lucy was left paralysed on her left leg below the knee. After four gruelling months, Lucy finally got diagnosed with the autoimmune encephalitis, an acute inflammation of the brain that leaves many people with permanent brain damage and has a mortality rate of about 1 in 10. After her dream of joining the police force was whisked away from her, Lucy is now an encephalitis and disability campaigner and an ambassador for disabled modelling. What a phenomenal woman. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? It's so funny because... um, just reading that intro, personally for me, sounds like a script for like a Hollywood mm. film. Doesn't actually even even sections of it doesn't sound livable for somebody, let alone all of it. Yeah, um, we've we've never met. Uh, I mean, the way I discovered you was on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. And I always think this is when social media is so great because I follow lots of different accounts and then they end up like recommending to you who you'd like. And I think they recommended you to me. And I thought, oh, she looks really glamorous. Oh, maybe. And you know, when someone's glamorous, you think, oh, I'll follow them to see what they wear and then I can <laughs> copy their outfits. And that, that's all I really thought about you. And then I sort of started seeing you on my feed. Then I realized, oh, there's something different about this girl that I hadn't noticed. And then I read up on you. Then I DM'd you and said, look, can I share you on my page? I feel like the women that follow me um would really benefit from everything that you stand for and your resilience and then I was like well god there's more than there's more to you than just an Instagram post there's so much to be found out about you and I asked you to come on the pod and I was so grateful um when you said yes and and here we are today <laughs> and we, we actually have a, a really interesting connection as well because you're an ambassador for Zebedee uh, model management I'm a, I'm a signed model for Zebedee model management and before way before I became disabled way before I obviously knew your story and I was just uh when people ask me all the time like who who are you inspired by who do you look up to and I don't really like subscribe to celebrity I don't really care you know about that kind of thing but I would always say Katie Piper because you're someone who's been through so much adversity and come out on top and been such a great lovely person throughout which I just think is awesome so I'm so honored to be invited onto your podcast honestly (laughs) uh well the feeling's mutual I feel the same when people say to me who inspires you I I I always find it hard to answer that question because it's hard to be inspired by people you've never met um or or you can't relate to and and I feel the same reading your page you know I've been through nothing like you at all um but elements of your story 
identify with not all of it you know but yeah. but but some of the feelings the loss of hope the emotion some of the some of the experiences so we we should start at the beginning because i've <laughs> researched your story a lot but one thing i couldn't research and i couldn't find out was who lucy was before this story began so i'd love to know a bit about you before your diagnosis i i do wonder if you feel like it's a different lifetime i even wonder if you remember the lucy mm-hmm. before all of this well, it's, it's super interesting because of the nature of what happened to me um, being a brain disease. I actually lost a lot of the memory of Lucy before this Lucy. And uh, with that, after everything that happened to me, there was a big grieving process of who on earth was this person before? And the bits of me that I could remember, I, I wasn't anymore. I wasn't the same person. Um, but I I was just skirting through life you know I was um I was top in the uh, top of the class all my life I was um really good at writing I was uh, I had lots of friends I was going to parties and everything every weekend and um just just Lucy <laughs> nothing special but um yeah the the grieving process and everything uh, it was very hard at the time but and I'll never be grateful for what happened to me don't get me wrong I'll never be thankful but I am grateful for the lessons that it's taught me the resilience it's shown within myself <laughs> yeah I, t- I totally get that I I understand that um and it's so interesting when we talk about um like child to adult because I know by law at 20 you're seen as an adult but I very much feel that what happened to you was at such a pinnacle moment. You think you know lots of things, you know nothing, you're still very dependent on your parents, even if you don't live with them. And it's it's a really sort of like iconic part of people's lives, their 20s. And I know just at this time you were studying criminology, right? And yeah. do you have a sense where you feel robbed of an experience because you worked so hard and it was in that final year that everything happened to you? When When you go through something so evil you are frustrated and you're, you're cross. Of course, and yeah. that's a huge part of the journey to get over. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely felt robbed. I felt robbed of my future, uh, the future that I planned. I felt robbed of the person that I was before of experiences. But the main thing that I felt robbed of was time. Mm. Um, with graduation, of course, I was also seeing my friends get houses, get jobs, partners, um, all things like this. And there was me (laughs) in my childhood bedroom, um, Mm -hmm. not even able to bath or shower myself or anything like that. And, um, that's, it's another huge part of the grieving process because, um, you realize eventually, uh, and again, it's a long process that when you make plans, uh, God laughs, you know, you're nobody's promised tomorrow and you're not promised the tomorrow that you want. Um, and eventually you just have to sort of come to terms with the fact that, this is the cards that I've been dealt and what I do next is up to me. You know, whatever I choose to do now is up to me. I can't change what's happened yesterday. Mm, Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? When sort of younger people talk about heartbreak, it's always referred into sort of relationships, sexual relationships and heartbreak comes in lots of forms and your heart can be broken by things that happen to you. It doesn't mean you can't rebuild, but your heart can be temporarily broken um, by life events. Yeah. A really specific thing that I remember about uh, a few months after I found out that I was permanently paralysed in one of my legs. And um, I wear an AFO, which is a orthotic, um, mine's zebra print at the minute. Uh, if you see my Instagram, you might have seen it. Yeah. And I remember one of my best friends broke her ankle 
And she was told that she needed to wear like a, a moon boot kind of thing for six weeks. And she made this awful social media post, mocking it, saying how ugly it was, how disgusting, how she didn't want to leave the house in it and everything. When I just found out that I was in one for life and everything. And again, it, that at the time was the most hurtful thing to me ever. And you don't, you don't realize how, you know, when, when someone has a permanent disability or things, that's not, it's not funny. It's not, and did you com- confront her? What happened? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it was it was so ridiculously insensitive at that time of my life. I I don't speak to her anymore, and it's something that I use an ex- as an example, even to tell people to not shame people, shame young people for using mobility aids, not mock them because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the clues in the name, it's an aid, it's helping someone. Um, yeah, because I never know, is it, is, it, is it young people? Is it when you're young, nothing's ever really happened to you? So you make these throwaway comments and jokes. So, so lots of people use what happened to me as a threat, a jokey threat and expression. So like on Twitter, when people are having sort of violent arguments, they'll say, I'm going to Katie Piper your face. I'm going to make you as ugly as Katie Piper. And it's like a cult joke for them. Or at Halloween, they're like, um, uh, no mask needed. I look like Katie Piper today. I haven't had much sleep. Or in, or in heat waves, people are like, oh my God. God, forgot my sun cream and now I look like Katie Piper. And it's like a thing where I'm like, would someone older say that? I'm sure these people tweeting must be of no life experience. Yeah. You know, do, what do you think? Do you feel like it's a, it's a younger person's thing? Or? I think it's so interesting. I was talking about the nasty sort of comments because believe I get as many as you can possibly imagine. Um, I'm sure you do. Yeah. That when someone sees something that's in any way different to what society tells us is right, what society tells us is beautiful and normal, they don't know how to act. And one of the main reasons that they don't know how to act is if that person who is different in some way is confident with it and is secure with themselves. And these people behind the screens can't understand, they can't comprehend how anyone different can be happy and accepting of themselves because that person behind the screen isn't happy and accepting Mm. of themselves. And they've probably never been through anything anywhere Mm. near the same. And because they don't understand it, instead of opening their minds and thinking, I could learn something here or well, that's still beautiful. That's just not what I've been told is beautiful. They attack because they don't know what else to do. And it's the same, anyone who's leaving any kind of hate comments, that's not a happy person. Mm, yeah. And whenever anyone does it to me, I always, I'll always respond to the comment. They're, they're so desperate for that attention. I will happily give them it, you know. If they want to spend their time on me, I'll happily use it as a teachable moment. I will happily make them look silly. Um, yeah. And it, you know, <laughs> some of the best content is clapping back at them. <laughs> Thank you for the views, guys. <laughs> oh, thanks for get it up in the algorithms, hon. <laughs> So, you know, I have so much I want to talk to you about because I wanted to talk to you about these symptoms first because the symptoms of the illness came on in the form of head pain, then feelings of depression. I I read you had some some episodes and your parents were taking you to hospital. And from all of it, I was like, God, it sounds so, such unknown territory. It sounds so easy to write it off as other things. It actually just sounds awful and, and terrifying and I wondered if you'd be able to explain a little, a little bit about this because it, it just feels like even if you could turn the clock back, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Yeah. I don't know. There's no example out there. Yeah. So I was getting really, really horrendous migraines uh, for quite a long time, but I was at university and the girl that I lived with, 
uh, got really bad migraines, migraines so bad that she'd been prescribed medicine for them. So I always thought to myself, well, her migraines are way worse than mine because she's on medicine. So I, if I'm complaining now, that's just so rude because <laughs> she's literally on medicine for migraines. But I, they were they were paralyzing my arms. They were making me physically sick. But every day it was, I haven't drunk enough water or I didn't get a good night's sleep. Oh, it was really hot last night. Oh, I'm stressed, it's university. So I just kept putting it off. Um, and yeah, I was in the second week of my third year of university and that's where everything gets a bit hazy for me. But I can remember trying to walk to lectures, crossing a really busy road. And when I look back now, I have no idea how I wasn't knocked over because I was hallucinating, I was dizzy, I was half asleep. It was, it was like so hazy and blurry, like I was really drunk. Um, but I think I was probably scared to make a big fuss of things mm-hmm. out of fear of what what's going on with me. I don't feel like myself at all. My housemates noticed that I was crying all the time and locking myself in my bedroom and complaining about things that I'd never complained about before. Like I was saying, I don't have a boyfriend. Nobody likes me. I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm going to fail my degree. I don't know what I'm doing my dissertation on. Just all, again, trivial things, but more mm. things that I could have handled things that, yeah, maybe I might've been sad about, but weren't adding up to the behavior. Um, and yeah, my housemate found me one morning at, uh, 6am, uh, screaming her name back with, uh, just back to back, Bex, 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 really robotically. So she rang my parents, they said, get an ambulance. And, uh, the hospital said, oh, she's had a panic attack, gave me some breathing techniques and sent me home. Uh, the next day, same thing happened again, but a million times worse. I was, I'd torn my bedroom to pieces. I was sat in the middle of the floor, rocking backwards and forwards, and my eyes were bulging out of my head. My housemate was so concerned. I was like manically laughing and everything. So she called my parents and they came straight away from Lincolnshire to Leicester. And the last thing I remember of that day, well, that morning is a bright light flashing in my face and way later down the line, my dad told me that he'd started filming me, like there was a flash on the camera because he started filming me straight away to show the doctors because he was right. Quick so thinking. concerned. So then after that, uh, it's kind of accounts from my parents. They put me in the car, uh, drove me five different hospitals. Nobody would take me in. It was the wrong postcode. I was, the, I was a student. It was the wrong kind of hospital. I tried escaping from the car on the motorway when it was moving. Again, I was just robotic and manic and everything. Long story short, that was 6am. By 5.30 that night, they managed to get me into um, a hospital who said, oh, she's very unwell. We need to section her immediately. And that was that. Uh, I was sectioned. But there's no, so that's just observations they made that Observation. decision uh, Can they, I didn't know they could section you just from observation. Sectioned under the Mental Health Act that night. And um, now I'm much more worldly wise and read up and everything. I believe uh, thoroughly that they saw a young girl um, at university and the gendered implications of that was mentally ill, case closed, done. Don't need to do mm. any tests. She's, she's a woman. She's mentally ill. She's hysterical. So at this point when you were sectioned, there was no talk of any other diagnosis beyond mental health. No, um, even even further than that, they said to my parents, she's mentally ill. Now you go and tell us why she's had a mental breakdown. You go work it out now. Um, which meant my parents ended up uh, giving my phone, my laptop, everything over to the police. Find, <sighs> find something out, come up with a storyline because 
She's never had any history of mental illness. Well, you can make any story from a 20-year-old's yeah. phone yeah. because when you're 20, you're experimenting with drink, recreational drugs. You're having different relationships that are emotionally charged because you're hormonal, you're under stress studying. You yeah. could make any jigsaw with yeah. these pieces, couldn't you? I was in a psychiatric ward for three months. Um, so you were totally aware of your surroundings? Yeah, at first I was aware, but also clueless as to what was happening because of the brain so the first night I thought I'd been put in prison I thought I was so scared I thought I'd done something really bad because obviously I was hallucinating and everything and I didn't understand what was happening um I have flashbacks of the whole three months um I don't know what's real and what isn't real because of the hallucinations and everything um, were they drugging you in, in yes the, yeah, yeah they were uh, treating this fictitious mental breakdown so antipsychotics everything that I didn't need and <laughs> I'm no doctor, but I can only assume that when someone has a rare brain disease, a very serious one, giving them the wrong medicine probably isn't going to help that. Um, and the environment could have ended up giving you the psychosis they said you that's had. That's what I have said know? so many times that when I went into that hospital, I had never had any mental illness in my life. But by gosh, by the time they were done with me, have mm. they given me a life of it? Like the trauma and yeah. yeah 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 and no no fault of any of the women in there whatsoever but when you're exposed to severe mental illness and you just aren't and I was so young and confused like that some of the things that I saw will will stay with me and obviously the drugs I was on and everything and the fact that I was in so much pain and distress because I had a brain disease like it's there's there's no way that I could ever explain the things that happened in there to anyone else. Um, and it's not that long ago, you know, we're, you're no. only 26. We're not yeah. talking about, you know, a decade ago in another era of your life. It's, yeah. I read somewhere, um, they said to your mum and dad, they said she's going to die and we don't know why. Yeah. Who came up with that statement and why did they come up with that statement? I have no idea. that. So that was uh, around two, two, yeah, two months in. Um, they, so I had gone from being as high as a kite, manic, screaming all the time. Uh, I was incontinent. I was um, just the rudest person in the world to the nurses and everything. I would, My parents would travel an hour every day to see me and I would refuse to see them and they would just be sat waiting in a waiting room and everything. And then that sort of hit a peak and then it was completely downhill as everything in my body started shutting down. Uh, all my autonomic functions so breathing blinking swallowing everything was going I was being fed through a nose tube mm. um I had a catheter and everything I was getting UTIs constantly because they weren't looking after me that way and UTIs can make a person act um mm -hmm. like mentally unwell um and yeah eventually I became catatonic so when you're catatonic you're in rigid stupor which means you can't feel your own body um and at that point, yeah, on my 21st birthday, they said to my mum and dad, she is going to die, but we don't know why. I mean, people don't just randomly die of a mental breakdown. Um, but as a last ditch attempt kind of thing, we can give her ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, which triggers seizures in the brain. Um, I didn't think that was even legal anymore. I thought that was something yeah, you saw so years it's, ago. It's used much more prehistorically, but in really, really severe cases of depression, it's used today and I think in really severe cases of depression it can be really beneficial and can help people out so anyway it's by no means is it a treatment for encephalitis I should be really really clear with that but by some miracle 
there's, it did trigger seizures in my brain and somehow that ultimately reset my brain. However, <laughs> of course, that's not the end of the story. And I always say, if that was it, then it would be some miracle. I would be here today with a brain injury. I would have had an awful time. Um, and that would be that. They mm. gave me this ECT and then they put me back on my hospital bed unattended. Now you should never leave someone who's having or had seizures unattended. That's kind of medicine 101. Uh, but they did with four pillows behind my head and no sides upon the bed. And <laughs> next to the bed was a radiator pipe with no cage on it. And you make it up, could you? It was my 21st birthday, which is towards the end of November which means the radiator pipe was as hot as it was ever going to be. Now, I had a big old seizure, fell out of the bed, catatonic, couldn't feel my own body. So I just laid <laughs> on an open radiator pipe as hot as it was ever going to be. And eventually, um, I believe I was put on an oncology ward bed just whilst they were waiting to, I don't know, take me back to the ward or whatever. Uh, one of an elderly woman uh, in a different bed, eventually noticed what had happened and was screaming for help. And how long were you on the pipe for then? You, so she don't an know. An amount of time, yeah, has never been disclosed. Um, uh, but enough time to burn completely through my sciatic nerve, third degree burn. It was about thirteen centimeters at first, I believe. Um, but yeah, my parents weren't told, um, and I was still obviously completely out of it at this time. And in the coming days, weeks, uh, when I did start to come round a little from the ECT, my dad um, came to visit and he asked the nurses, why is she shrieking? She's like screaming, crying out in pain. But at that point they could put anything down to, course, well, she's not well, yeah. you know, she's everything she's been doing for the, you. for the past months, she's been bizarre. So this is just her, this is just what she's like at the minute, you know? Um, and yeah, so it wasn't until um, a couple of days before Christmas that I was properly discharged from the psychiatric ward. Um, and at that time they, by the way, at this point I couldn't speak. I didn't know who my parents were, couldn't walk. Had you had burns, had you had skin, you would have had to go to theatre and have a skin graft, right, on your leg? Uh, no, uh, they, um, as I started to become more aware of myself and started to mobilize a little bit in the bed, I was super aware of being in agonizing pain, like no pain I've ever felt in my life. And unfortunately, again, everything that I'd been going through was so out of the ordinary to what I was used to that I didn't even really know myself what was right and what was wrong. And even if I did know, I couldn't really vocalise it. I couldn't tell people. Well, you I, wouldn't be listened to no, anyway. I was, yeah. I could, all I could do was, oops, sorry, that was my splint hit. <laughs> all I could do was scream in pain because I, I didn't know how to speak. Um, and this is the whole thing about being mentally ill, not being able to advocate for yourself. They've yeah. taken that away from you. Yeah. You know? And once you're labelled mentally ill, everything you do after that, everything you say, makes you look no more mentally ill. The entire yeah. time that I was in there, I was desperately begging and telling them, let me out, please let me out. Before the accident happened, there were so many times that I was running to the exit. I had to be restrained and everything because I was so desperate to escape. And that now, thinking of me doing that, that is so beyond heartbreaking to think of myself desperate, desperate to get out. And I was right. I was right. I shouldn't have been in there.
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I did wonder if the if the diagnosis did it give you some kind of clarity and relief and some kind of thing to present to people. I told you I'm not mm. crazy. Like, how did it feel? So for me at the time, um, with it being so soon after everything had happened, I still didn't have a clue what was going on. I uh, we but looking back now, my family, none of us had ever heard of encephalitis before, um, and when it was just said to us like in passing kind of thing, anti-NDMA receptor autoimmune encephalitis. So then we went and researched and worked out and there's a, an amazing charity called the Encephalitis Society and that's where we got all of our information. And the symptoms, hallucinations, personality changing, confusion, headaches. I mean, there's so many things that could be, yeah. you know, and they do feel like mental health related, yeah. stress related. And something, you know? something again that I've learned... Um, after everything that happened is that in medicine uh, doctors are taught when you hear hoof beats think horse not zebra and what that translates to is if you see a symptom assume it's the most obvious thing because that saves time and they need to save time they're understaffed underfunded everything in the nhs so of course and in most cases i'm sure that works um what what goes wrong is when you're the rare case when you're the zebra when you're the rare disease which is why i have a zebra uh, afo <laughs> so when you joined the, the community the charities the forums were you this rare misdiagnosis and has every everyone else you've got in touch with been been, you know diagnosed and it's been fine like is this is this common or just do people normally get treated straight away the rate of misdiagnosis is gigantic I, be, I I won't try and pull a statistic out of nowhere but I believe that the rate of misdiagnosis hasn't changed for I'm gonna say 30 years but also I'll have to fact check I've, I've um it the misdiagnosis rate is gigantic um there's a whole film on netflix uh, about someone from my community Susanna kahalin who it's called brain on fire who had the I same need to illness write this and hers her, she wrote a book called uh brain on fire my month of madness so similar happened to her for one month where my story gets completely different to a lot of the other ones i've read is um the uh the leg thing and the ect um the treatment for encephalitis can be steroids um even chemo and and things like that and obviously i never had any of that i just had this ect which was miraculous but was also <laughs> the demise of my leg <laughs> do you know the biggest thing i want to know but i don't know if it's too private so please say <laughs> you don't want to share it if you because you don't have to share it it's not vital we all know but did you get any justice for the way you were treated? So the, what I always answer to this one is um, we had to find out over the span of about two years, we had to find out what had happened to my leg um, through knocking on a million doors of experts, etc. And once we found out, actually, there's a good story for you. We were in the process of finding out through all these experts. And then one day, I had a rehabilitation appointment and it was meant to be with my regular rehabilitation doctor, but no, he was away. So I had a locum doctor who was a woman 
and uh, she basically asked me for a brief rundown of what had happened, and I got to <laughs> that the- doesn't exist a brief rundown. <laughs> like, no, imagine, no. and we were there for five you- hours. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine you on those forms that go any previous medical history <laughs> in that little box. You're like, Han, how long do you have? <laughs> so she, yeah, and she asked me about once she heard about the burn and my leg and everything. She asked me to show her the burn. So I showed her the burn and it was as if a penny dropped. Her face fell. She grabbed her phone, got on Google, pulled up all these diagrams of the sciatic nerve and was explaining to me, everyone's sciatic nerve is like this, but then some people's sciatic nerves split two ways. And if your sciatic nerve splits two ways, then that's the exact position and size of your sciatic nerve. And this is what's happened. And I, (laughs) and I, as soon as I left, I um, told my parents and everything and everything made sense. Everything made sense. And then the next time, by this point, I was more Lucy. I was much more myself. And I was, it was at the time where I was furious because I knew- you're getting empowered with the knowledge. Yeah, I knew that something was wrong. I knew that it wasn't right. The misdiagnosis was enough. That was, and for anyone who's had encephalitis, for anyone who will in future, if you're misdiagnosed, that is enough. That is horrific. But what happened to me afterwards- um, and the cover-up of, oh, that's encephalitis, was I was enraged. Um, and the next time that I was called in to see my neurologist, um, I was enough Lucy to point blank ask him, uh, is this what happened? And he was the most flustered man I've ever seen in my life. He was stumbling, stuttering, and he ended up agreeing, admitting it. And just after he admitted it, a dictaphone went off in his pocket and he had been recording, which you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to record without permission. So he'd obviously been covering and covering and covering his back, but he he did himself in because he recorded his own sort of confession. Now, um, in terms of justice or however you would see that, if anyone has ever read like the Guardian article about me or anything, you'll see the hospital uh, apologize and they basically admit uh, there's no, there's no discrepancy about what happened basically. Um, What happened happened and nobody, nobody denies that. (laughs) So it's interesting for me because I get to meet people, not exactly like you, but with some, some similar, there is nobody like you. (laughs) Um, And I say that as a compliment. Um, You know, I get to meet people that have been through different things have similar traits to you and I suppose what you all have in common is you don't give up you become defeated and depleted at points but you don't get completely broken you carry on so when I think about your story there's lots of people with the beginning part of your story and what their end is is they end up conforming to what people say they are they get sectioned and they're not mad but they end up becoming mad and they get broken and they never leave the system you know Uh, even though that the the people that were sectioning them were wrong. And I remember thinking in my own case, um, I went through, I was in an induced coma, drug-induced coma. And when I came out, I had psychotic episodes and I had things that I believed happened but actually didn't and lots of flashbacks. And it was hard to separate the truth from the reality. And I feared telling people too much in case I did get sectioned because in my sort of kind of irrational state, I knew when you're young, when you get sectioned, you never get out. And I, I knew that. And I always worried about that. And I... 
with my story going to court, there were obviously a defense team telling me I was lying and it wasn't true and I was making it up. And it, and it was, it was for a, ma a male team, you know, the defendants were male. It was very difficult. Um, and I think there's something in me and some of the people like me and in you that doesn't give up and you do sort of temporarily get shattered. But I wonder, like, do you understand what it is? Do you know why you didn't give up when the whole world was against you and overriding you? I felt like no, nobody was going to save me. Everyone had let me down. Medicine had let me down. Doctors had let me down. And eventually I realized the only person that's going to actually help you and save you is yourself. You are the only person who is going to get yourself you out of this. And there was a really massive turning point when, so my grandpa taught me how to speak again. Um, my grandpa was a teacher when uh, he was younger and he knew that people's musical memory uh, outlives any other memory a lot of the time. It's the same in sort of uh, people with dementia or Alzheimer's, they can remember music. And he knew that before I was poorly, my favorite singer was Elvis Presley. Now he oh. went on the internet and bought every single Elvis Presley songbook he could possibly find and learned to play every single song on the keyboard, gave me a microphone and thought, one day she's going to sing. Yeah. One day she's going to sing along. And I did. And that was the start of my speech therapy, which again, is absolutely amazing. But then following on from that, uh, my sister helped me start this blog. Uh, I was terrified of going on my laptop because uh, I thought, like I said at the start, again, I was really good at writing and really academic before everything happened. And I was so scared that I'd lost it all. Um, but one day she said, forget about criminology. You forget about that right now. What you can do now is write about something that you really know. And what do you know more than uh, what's just happened to you? So yeah. one day when I was, I was left alone for like the first time in ages, I just sat typing away and wrote what had happened to me. And that was that those two things were like the starting blocks in what eventually allowed me to go back to university and graduate. And as I've said earlier, I was part of these Facebook, I am part of these Facebook survivor groups for people with encephalitis. And the thing about these groups is because of the large amount of misdiagnosis and because of the fatality rates, every time you log on, you will see unfortunately people losing their lives and their family members sharing it and on this specific week um I opened my Facebook and someone's fiance had shared that his fiance had passed away that morning and she was 21 and for some reason that particular time and I think it's because she was the same age as I was it ripped through me it was like I grieved for myself all over again and I sat in bed all day crying just absolutely heartbroken for this girl and then towards the end of the day I sat up in bed and I just said to myself Lucy what are you doing because mm -hmm. what would this girl give what would this girl's fiance give her family and her friends for her to be where you are now and for her to have this second chance and you're you're just sat inside every day you've you've been given such a gift and you're not doing anything with it and at that moment yeah. I kind of felt like I owed it to this girl to do whatever I could speak whenever the opportunity arose about encephalitis tell people about it I don't care how bored people are of hearing me talk about it in my real life because our misdiagnosis were the reason that we ended up where we were. And it's because doctors don't know enough about it. The general public don't know enough about it. Me and my family didn't know anything about it. And I have a voice now where so many people lose their voice to this mm. horrific disease. This is when someone properly inspires you. Like she was 
an inspiration yeah. to you properly, yeah. you know? So, so what about like now that you said you've got this platform, you're using it in, in a really, really strong way. What can we do? Because I feel like we're always taught about signs of stroke. Um, we understand, you know, what, what to do in, in those cases, but what can we do with this? You know, how, what needs to change? What kind of awareness needs to change? Yes. Yeah, so something really cool that we do every year, um, is in February, we have a World Encephalitis Day. And on World Encephalitis Day, we try and turn social media red. It's called hashtag red for wed, World Encephalitis Day. So everyone wears red, some people dye their hair red, red lipstick or whatever, and you just share the symptoms, statistics, facts about encephalitis and a post on people's stories, tweets, Instagrams, whatever, um, links to the, the charities who really do the work. And it gets bigger every year. And, you know, when I started, um, uh, supporting the encephalitis society and everything, um, I believe it was something like 85% of the population didn't know what encephalitis was. Now I've been involved in it for a few years now, and I believe now it's 75%. So where there's still wow. a huge amount of time to go, it shows we're, we're making progress. And I, I just, anytime I speak to anyone, like I, I just hope if you remember anything, you'll remember the girl with the colorful walking sticks and the blonde hair and the word encephalitis, because that's, that's all it needs. And then if, if you're ever in any doubt, just suggest the word to a doctor, because it can honestly be the difference between life and death. Well, absolutely. That's what your story shows. You know, you had your life stolen. Okay, you're here physically, but you did have part of your life stolen because of it. Um, there's no better advocate than you. And, you know, you talk so passionately about your campaigning, you use your space, you use your platform. Um, but you also, you also are a model. You know, you said you're assigned to Zebedee as well. What is day-to-day life like for you? So um, after the sort of the pandemic started and everything, a lot of work became more online, which is actually um, what I found was much more comfortable for myself because of my my illness and my disability. So I'm really fortunate that I get to work with um, some of my favorite brands, um, increasing the representation and visibility of disabled people in the media and fashion, which is something that there can never be enough of. Uh, <laughs> there's too little at the minute. And uh, yeah. sometimes even when a brand does uh, include a disabled person, it will be sort of tokenistic and they won't consider like the different intersectionalities of disability. You know, it will just be one person of one race, one uh, gender, one sexuality, one size, age, etc. Um, so I always encourage any brand when you think you've done enough to be inclusive, go again, <laughs> try yeah. again, because I promise you haven't. And, um, Good mantra, there's so many, yeah. I, I try and encourage brands again, whenever there's a, a big date in the disability calendar, for example, Purple Tuesday was last month, which celebrates the 274 billion pounds that, uh, disabled people put into the economy every year. So now do something for us, do something back. <laughs> if you want yeah. that money, do something, make your websites accessible, you know, hire disabled models, um, Friday is International Day of Disabled People. At the minute, we're in UK Disability History Month. And brands, for some reason, leave disability out. It's the last taboo in inclusive inclusivity. And I don't understand why. I don't understand why people can't be bothered to caption their videos. I don't understand why people can't be bothered to add alt text. Um, it makes no sense to me. So I don't mind being that loud person that brands 
probably don't like because I call them out. Uh, someone's got to do it. <laughs> There's loads of amazing disabled creators, advocates, activists, all doing the same thing, fighting for the same thing. Because uh, disabled people are valuable and worthy and deserve representation and accessibility. And, you know, that's something I'm super passionate about, as well as obviously raising awareness of encephalitis. Yeah, absolutely. God, wow. It's just, it's just unbelievable. You are just such an unbelievable person. And I think you're still so young. Like, you know, at Technic, you're at the start of your life still, which which seems a bit stupid thing to say to you because you've lived, what's happened to you doesn't happen in most people's lifetime. Yeah. What What is next for you? What are your dreams and hopes and ambitions? Because you are still at the beginning of a, a long life. All I can ask for, all I can hope for is that the mark that I leave on the world is a positive one. And that the thing is now for me, I already know that from me talking about encephalitis, people's lives have been saved. Now that is something remarkable. But on top of that, I already know that posting my silly little pictures on Instagram has given people the confidence to go out the house with a mobility aid. So what more could I possibly ask for than to keep being able to put positivity out there and spread a spread a message that can help people, you know, other than that, <laughs> whatever life gives me, I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> Yeah, God, it's honestly, I just, I'd love to work with you more. I'd love to do more stuff with you. I'd love to go and do documentaries with you. Like I feel, I, I feel a bit creepy saying it, but I feel <laughs> so close to you. It's so strange. We obviously have walked very different lives. Yeah, but- it's it's actually, again, it's strange, but um, like I said, I, I always obviously knew who you were and everything, but just, I think last week I was scrolling on TikTok and somebody had re-uploaded a clip you must have done a documentary or something. And it was the first time that I'd really heard the full story. And, right, okay. And, and I, I said to my friends after I saw it, like, can can you believe that this, this person has come out on top after that? And what a... F- to, to the person and... The title of the podcast is extraordinary. I feel like you've just owned the series. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to book anyone else. No, I don't you, know how you anyone else is going to. So many great people on it. So no, they I don't. Just, I just posted an Instagram before, like I'm about to do the podcast. I'm most excited to ever have gone on, and I, I genuinely mean that. Like. Oh, thank you so much for giving up your time. Um, I'd love to stay in touch thank and meet you. up in real life. You know. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please follow where you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show or share on your socials. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>